Oh, it is recording. I see the little figure. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. I will do my little spiel and then I'll introduce you. Nice. Okay, here I go. Hi, I'm Sue from the Southern Mind and Research Centre at the University of Edinburgh and we're recording another psychological and that's our little podcast. We're trying to make a kind of evidence-based contribution to the conversations that people are having quite a lot nowadays during um, the COVID-19 pandemic about child and adolescent development and well-being and learning and things like that. And today I'm talking to Sam Wasp from the University of East London and he's going to talk to me about um, infant development and particularly the influence of stress early on in life on how infants develop and learn. Hello, Sam. How are you? Hi, Sue. Great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Um, so why don't you start by telling me what you think was the kind of main headline finding from this bit of research that you did? Yeah, so we were kind of building on previous research looking at early life stress, uh, suggesting that kind of babies who have more stressful and particularly noisy and chaotic home environments do worse um, at lots of different outcomes later in life. So academic outcomes, but also mental health outcomes. It really is kind of an across the board, like increased risk. If you have a noisy, chaotic, unpredictable early life home environment, you're worse at kind of lots of different cognitive performance, but also kind of emotion regulation, mental health, that kind of thing. So what we did was we measured kind of actual noise in children, uh, you know, the, the household noise that children were having, and we measured their stress systems at the time when they were experiencing it. And basically our main take-homes were babies being raised in noisier and more chaotic, less predictable home environments, they were more up and down in their stress system. So they had bigger, faster increases and decreases in their levels of stress. And we managed to link this both to kind of problems that they were having with um, sustaining attention, so paying attention to one thing, and also to emotion regulation. And the last part of the story, though, was it's not all bad for these children that are growing up in noisier, you know, more chaotic households, that they're not just kind of performing more poorly at these cognitive assessments compared to other children, they actually perform better at some. So they're better at kind of fast learning, so rapid onset learning where they haven't got long to learn something. You know, they're actually outperforming children raised in quieter households. Where, but what there are definitely other areas, things like sustained attention, things like emotion regulation, where they're not doing so well. Mm. So, so I suppose the first thing that I'm curious about that from them is, the, is this, idea of kind of noisy household right so there's mm. there's lots of different ways that 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 noisiness noisiness might come through so if you have you know lots of brothers and sisters that mm. could lead to a noisy household or maybe you live in a kind of really busy urban environment so there's a lot mm. of kind of external traffic noise you live you know like close to Heathrow airport or something so mm. was there what what kinds of noisy households are we talking about um, and is that something that you, a particular factor that, that you measured? Yeah, so this is quite a tricky thing. And actually, it's one of the things that, um, you know, really motivated us to do the study. So pretty much all the research that's out there at the moment is um, either using something called a chaos scale, um, which is basically a parent rated <laughs> scale where they basically, I know, it's one of those ones you could see, it's, it's an acronym. And they, it's like, how can we get it to stand for chaos? And it's fusion. <laughs> Hubbub order something and something. You know, you must have spent ages on it. Oh, hubbub um, is a great. I mean, hubbub, I really want yeah. to fill in the hubbub subscale. That's fantastic. Got to be an eight. Come on, what sounds a bit like chaos? That's an eight. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so 
And but basically, that's a self-rating questionnaire where parents basically just rate a series of statements like it's a zoo in our household on a scale from one to uh, ten, um, and you just average the scores. And um, the other research into um, uh, looking specifically at noise in early life is tends to be done, you know, as you were mentioning about traffic noise, kind of looking at average levels of noise. And mm-hmm. one of the big um, uh, kind of things that motivates us to do this is both of these measures are looking at noise kind of as a static thing, like just you just mm-hmm. get one kind of number, which is that, that child's level of, you know, noise slash chaos exposure. Um, and that we kind of argued, kind of we had to write a grant application to get this in, and we argued that, in fact, that's actually quite a bad way of measuring noise because, you know, noise is obviously fluctuating. It's always going up and down um, at the time. And what nobody's really measured before is your reactions to noise as it happens. Um, uh, so, you know, this is kind of quite ironic because, you know, stress is by definition a compensatory mechanism. So, you know, Hans Saylor, who defines stress, defined it as general adaptation syndrome. So it's how our body responds to change. Uh, so we have this irony that, you know, the point of stress is to allow us to respond to change, but the way everyone's measuring it is in a way that, you know, we don't see that change happening because we just get one number because we just measure it through a questionnaire. So what we did was we did something differently. We actually put little microphones on the babies and little stress monitors on the babies. Um, and uh, we sent them home with it. When, in fact, we had a researcher go to their home and, you know, put this equipment on at the start of the day. And then we just left it with them. We, we captured a typical day in their life. Um, and then the researcher returned to their home to pick it up at the end of the day. So, you know, trying to do something different, you know, different to what had been done before. Mm-hmm. So tell me more about this measurement process, because this is something you're kind of known for, Sam, is this, you know, kind of innovative, um, often quite kind of data-rich measurement. So I guess I'm curious about, um, I don't know, what, so what that was maybe like for the babies. You know, did you get many babies kind of yanking their microphones off and discarding them after a while? No, but we just, yeah, (laughs) we had a very painful process um, because it wasn't a very, it it was a quite a, um, uh, not a a very tight budget grant. So we spent ages Uh trying to work out how we were going to actually design this equipment. And I I had like three or four years ago, I sat there staring at this wiring diagram of this printed circuit board because we were trying to save (laughs) 50 quid by wiring everything up ourselves. So it was an incredibly painful process. So, we had the printed circuit board pr- designed by someone in Germany, printed in um, China, and then sent to these guys in Mongolia who we found on the internet who were writing the firmware. And we were stuck in the middle trying to, um, you know, to uh, kind of integrate the whole process. And it was very, very painful. Don't ever, if you're in this situation, try and save a few quid by doing it the cheap way. Um, and we also had, uh, you know, a fashion student who was designing these this kind of baby equipment, so uh, the, the clothes that they were wearing. So we had a, a little baby grow because uh, one of the things in it was an accelerometer, so it needed to be really tight for them um, um, so that the accelerometer doesn't jiggle because that messes up the data. So we've got like a skin tight, uh, you know, just a baby grow tunic and we, we sewed in various pockets and stuff. So And then the microphone obviously had to be at the top level, so we had some kind of things coming through. So, yeah, it, it, was, it, it actually worked pretty well in the end. Um, we didn't have many babies, you know, because they were napping during the day and they were fine napping with it on and everything like that. But, yeah, it mm. wasn't half painful getting there. Mm. And so I can imagine that the data you get from that is incredibly kind of detailed and rich. And mm. so it, this could get really complicated very quickly, but perhaps you could pick out um, a little detail of, of something about how you sort of process and manage that data to try and, 
turn it into the sorts of variables that you were interested mm. in? Can you tell me anything about the, the techniques that you use for that? Yeah, so, so that's a good question. So, so yeah, it, it, it is very, very complex. So it, it does, so, yeah, so I do, I, I like to work like this, where, where you collect, you know, big data, which are very, um, you know, complex and unconstrained and, you know, in the world. So basically, you know, most of the research, and, you know, most of the research I do still is in the lab where, you know, you're trying to look at one particular thing and you basically, you know, do use a subtractive method where you present, you know, you get them to do one thing and then you get them to do exactly the same thing again, but it differs but for the presence of one thing, basically. And you just mm, average, mm. you know, the difference between your blocks, you know. And everything else is controlled for. So the environment is identical between the conditions. You don't have everything else, anything else to worry about. Um, I like to do stuff where you're, which is completely the opposite of that in a way, where you don't put any constraints, you know, you don't cut out any environmental things. You just go for, you know, collect a real-life sample, it's one of the things that's very controversial among scientists. I've had, you know, I had a very angry, um, uh, very traumatic for me meeting at the Wellcome Trust where one grant that I spent ages on, um, was, they, they, I was really getting ripped apart by a panel saying, you know, you can't do it like this because it can't be hypothesis driven if you do it like this. Um, you know, you, you have to have, you know, an idea. And I was like, yeah, but I know it, it is hypothesis driven. I've put my hypotheses in bold font, but, you know, a lot of people have this idea that, you know, when we sit out to do, an experiment we have to you know there's only one way to do it which is in this very mm. very tightly controlled way i personally mm. think you can have very very clearly defined very hypothesis driven analyses applied to big noisy complex naturalistic data sets but you have to be very disciplined and you you really have to write down exactly what you're planning to do afterwards because there are so many rabbit holes that you can disappear down mm. so so for this one we the, you know it's quite simple in a way you know our first thing was how do, do fluctuations in environmental noise associate with, you know, fluctuations in stress? So that's the question that, you know, is an important one that nobody's actually answered before um, mm. for this reason that nobody's actually recorded the noise in the home as it's happening. So, so that was our first one. And that was just, you know, it was quite simple in a way. You know, we, we chucked out, you know, the bits. We decided to concentrate on only the sections where they're at home um, and the baby's awake. Because uh, we mm -hmm. thought that was only giving us a clean answer. You know, obviously the microphone was picking up everything, so we got people to, we got um, um, uh, researchers to go through and code, you know, what was happening in each microphone, um, kind of chunk of the microphone data, and um, anyone where the mic the baby was vocalising themselves, we cut that out because we only wanted to look at ambient noise. Um, but right. then we basically just had like a continuous time series of the day, you know, one sample per, uh, we averaged the data to kind of minute long chunks of how much noise there was going on. We had mm -hmm. their stress, their physiological stress, which um, I can tell you more about how we measure that in a second if you're interested. But basically we had that as a simple, you know, variable that, that fluctuated during the course of the day. Um, so we had two kind of variables that just fluctuate during the course of the day. And we basically did something called a cross correlation. So you basically, that's a way of looking at do you get time lagged associations between two time series? So, you know, basically at times during the day when the ambient noise is louder, is their, uh, is their levels of physiological stress, you know, higher was basically our question. So, you know, I, you know, I would definitely say, you know, we managed to answer that question despite the fact that our data was very, very noisy. You know, some of the time, you know, they were picking their nose. Some of the time, you know, they were doing all the different things that a baby naturally does at home, you know. So, you know, so, so yeah, that's how we did it. It's amazing. Um, so I could ask you more about measurement, but I'm going to move on to ask you what you think we can kind of learn from this. So, so 
so right at the beginning, you mentioned, you know, you talked about how the big motivation for the study was trying to sort of chart the way this noisy, chaotic environment could change the baby's kind of stress levels. And that in turn would lead to or, or relate to, um, you know, things like their um, educational attainment at school and mm. stuff like that. So did you look at that in your babies or, or, or um, you know, could, like, can you say a bit more about what we can sort of take from this in terms of how we should be, um, you know, monitoring kind of risk and resilience in babies or supporting mm. children as they grow up, that kind of thing? Yeah, so, so the outcome measures that we looked at were, so we also brought the same babies into the lab um, right. and, um, uh, so, and did, you know, you know well-validated measures of uh, kind of sustained attention. So basically how if you just, you know, the, the way you measure it in um, babies is basically if you just flash up something interesting, you know, aesthetic, you know, interesting stimulus that they haven't seen before, you know, how long do they... Uh, engage with it for mm. um, so that's mm. been shown by lots of other people to be predictive of quite like, a lot of different types of long-term um, mm. kind of academic and mental health outcomes I think mental health definitely academic uh, and then we also did emotion regulation which is basically we did a thing um, called a still face paradigm where the mum interacts with the baby and then freezes for two minutes um, and then unfreezes um, and we look at how how much of an increase in the baby's stress levels they get what during the period where the mum's frozen. Um, mm. So those were the main measures that we did in their lab. You know, as I say, they were chosen because they were very very well used uh, by other people um, to you know to link to, to predict later development. We didn't have the funding to, to look actually at the later development. It was just a cross-sectional study uh, for this one. Although we're doing it longitudinally later on. Um, mm. And basically, the basic take-home was um, if you look. Um, between different babies, depending on their average levels of noise exposure during the day, basically the children who get more household noise, they're more kind of unstable in their patterns of stress, which kind of makes sense because, you know, as I was saying, our stress is by definition, it's a dynamic compensatory mechanism. That's what our stress systems do. It helps us to respond to change. And if I'm, you know, being raised in a very fast-changing environment, um, you know, I'm having to continuously read that more often. So it kind of makes sense that, you know, children who are raised in faster, noisier, more chaotic environments are more up and down, more unstable in their stress patterns. But the reason that this, you know, affects kind of academic outcomes and cognitive outcomes as well as, you know, mental health outcomes is because particularly during early development and also later on, but it's especially true, we think, during early development, we really use our stress systems for everything. So we use our stress systems to pay attention. So, you know, if I flash off a picture, you know, a novel picture to a baby, you know, just similar to what we were doing in the lab, you get a measurable response on the baby's, you know, um, uh, kind of stress system, so, or, or autonomic nervous system. So what we were finding was uh, the babies in the lab, you know, we flashed something new up, all of the babies showed a reaction in their stress systems just to seeing something new and interesting. But mm -hmm. the babies who were raised in noisier households, they couldn't sustain that change for as long. They tended to, you know, bounce mm. back to kind of mean much more quickly, which meant that behaviorally they couldn't sustain this kind of, um, you know, sustain their attention to it for as long. Yeah. Mm. And when it came to emotion regulation, we found that the babies being raised in noisier households tend to get more upset more quickly um, which was kind of linking to their kind of worst emotion regulation. So, I mean, I think this is stuff that does provide kind of 
you know, even though it's a very early days, you know, nobody's done a study like this before, you know, we definitely need to do it longitudinally. Um, you know, I think it does provide some hints around this idea, you know, these, it provides some insight into these mechanisms, why, you know, stress, early life stress seems to be impacting so widely later development, you know, and that's just simply because our stress systems are involved in so many different things, but also potentially, you know, what we can do about it. Mm. Mm. Oh, it's such great work, Sam. Um, well, I think we should draw to a close because we are trying to uh, stick to our bite-sized podcast tagline, though mm. I always get too interested and it's hard to do. But um, before we finish, we are trying to um, kind of think about any early career researchers or or PhD students who might be listening or undergrad students who might be listening perhaps don't have the usual kind of peer support networks around them um, during lockdown. So I wondered if mm-hmm. you had any, um, you know, little insights or encouragement for those, uh, those kinds of listeners. Oh, so specifically people with coping with, um, coping with kind of being stuck at home or... or no, 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 just to, just to kind of, um, you know, fill in the gap that you might normally have by going to seminar series and meeting people and stuff like that, right? So it yeah. doesn't have to be about how to cope right now, but um, yeah. you know, I just, okay. just nice yeah, to, What yeah. I was going to say um, to that too is just a, a kind of about reading and just how... So I did what, you know, hopefully quite a lot of people, you know, at home are doing now. When I started my PhD, I just... Um, I was actually, you know, doing a, I had a, I worked for 10 years and I was living out in Berlin on a different job. I actually worked in, in opera. Um, and I, I was living out in Berlin and I had three, three or four months when, um, I could afford to like not work because I had enough money from, from the work and I just sat and just read. Um, and it's really interesting. So the way research works is you kind of dig yourself into a canal. Um, I think because a lot of people like to think what they know what they're talking about, you know, because you, and a lot of people are scared about talking about topics where they don't necessarily know, uh, you know, everything that there is to know on a topic. So a lot of people say, you know, this is my specialist area and I will only talk about this, you know. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the problem with that is that you, you get kind of entrenched in a particular line of research. So I guess the most important thing that I try and encourage people to do is to, you know, try and do stuff that's different to what's been done before, you know, trying to mm-hmm. really think, you know, outside the box and trying to say, okay, there's a lot of research in this area, um, but there's absolutely no research in this area. So spend a lot of time, you know, typing, you know, kind of unusual combinations of different words into your uh, search box. And, you know, try and find an area where that hasn't been researched very well before. Compared to what most people did, you know, it's only what I did when I was choosing a PhD, which was you find some research and you think, oh, this is interesting. They've done that. They've done that. But nobody's done this, you know, making a slight difference on what people have done before. And that means that, you know, where there's a lot of research, you get more and more research built onto an area where there's a lot of research. So, you know, the way I'll characterize the, you know, the field of research at the moment is there are some questions where there's a massive amount that we know about it. And there are some other questions that I think are really equally important where there's just nobody's really looked before. So, you know, that's what, that would be my main, you know, message to people, you know, try and, you know, literally think outside the search box. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, so I think we will wrap up there. Thank you so much for your time, Sam. And I will let anyone listening know that they will be able to find out more about Sam's work by following the links on the podcast page, which is at ed.ac.uk 
forward slash Salverson dash research. Thank you very much, Sam. Bye. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Sue. Okay, we did it. I thought that went quite smoothly.